still depress you. Um, so I was prepared for this hour to serve this depress you. I have personally known, personal, personally, okay, known three pastors who gave in to the desires of the flesh and ended their ministry with adultery. I have personally known one pastor who turned out to be a pedophile. I have personally known one other pastor who was addicted to pornography, and of course it destroyed his ministry and ended that church. Now, these are not big nationally known guys or anything. I'm, I'm talking guys I have known and had coffee with and that sort of thing. These are, these are men who clearly knew better. Clearly knew better. That's the thing. The desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes and the pride of life combined with the power of sin are insidious. Just like God said to Cain in Genesis 4, right? Abel, there's Cain and Abel, and Abel's sacrifice is accepted, and Cain's isn't. What does God say to Cain? He says, sin is at the door, and it desires you. But you must master it. It desires us. It desires all of us. In Christ, we have been given what we need to master it. Now, last Sunday, First John chapter two, we saw that we live in this world that is under the immediate control of the agency of sin, and this agency manifests itself in a lot of ways, but often by sin disordering our desires in three spheres: our desires for satisfaction physically, our desires for material things, and our desires related to our status relative to other people. To how we relate to other people. A <coughs> cough drops wore off. That was, of course, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. And our job is to discipline ourselves to live in the freedom that Christ purchased for us with his blood. We've been set free from sin through Christ, but we have to live in that. And doing so requires that we choose God's will over our own John Hope which exchanges slavery to sin for the freedom that we receive through God's grace. So having talked about that last Sunday, I felt it was appropriate for us to review very quickly this Sunday last year's teaching on God's will that we encountered next. It's such an important topic that I think it bears a one Sunday review so that we have this, this knowledge in our heads to guide our hearts. As the desires of the flesh and of the eyes and of the pride of life are so powerful, and can be, when disordered, so insidious that they will take us out before we even know it. Just like that poor fish that Tommy caught last week. Remember? Tommy's fish. There he is. Fish is swimming around. Sees that worm on that hook. And bam! His natural desire to have lunch. And Tommy's crying him up on the shore. So I want to start by reminding us how we experience God's will. This is always kind of an interesting subject. Remember that God, from God's standpoint, God is unified in his will as he is in all things. It's not like God has, is divided up and has all these separate wills. He's unified in his will. He's God, and he's, it's all one thing to him. But even though that, that's true from his perspective, we experience his will in three ways. First is what we call his sovereign will. 
That's the things that he decrees or allows. Sovereign will is going to come to pass. We're not going to change it. We often can't even see what it is until after it's happened. I don't, I don't really know what God's up to unless he tells me. Some of it is declared in Scripture to us. For example, in prophecy. I know the general outline of what God has planned for the end times because he's declared it to us. And it's going to happen. Nothing's going to stop it. It's very important to understand that nothing happens in the universe unless God has either decreed it, like he said, thus it shall be, or, as in many things, maybe even most things, he's allowed it to happen within the grand scheme of things. That's the first way we experience God's will. Second way is what we call his moral will, and this is going to be very important for us when it comes to avoiding sin. These are the commands and the principles that he's given us to live by. The fence that hems us in and is meant to keep us from sin and from hurting ourselves and from hurting other people. They're the, the guides to having a good life. You want to have a good life? Well, God's given you some pretty good guides in his word. And then finally, we, we have times where we're not exactly sure we need God to help us make a decision. We call that his individual will. His will regarding specific decisions an individual might be able to make. How do we know what he would have us do in some specific situation that maybe isn't directly addressed in Scripture. So John told us in 1 John chapter 2 that the solution to dealing with the three spheres of desire that can so easily become disordered because of the power of sin is to do God's will. Look at what he says. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. There's a dichotomy there, right? There's, there's, you're either going to love the world, or you're going to love God. So what does what loving the world look like? Well, it's the desires of the flesh, and the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away, along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So when John tells us this, he's talking about Really, the moral and individual wills, right? He's not talking about the sovereign will, because God's sovereign wills aren't out there. But he's talking about when you've got to do the will of God, the other two. But I want to look at why all three matter. First of all, God's sovereign will. Why does it really matter? Who cares? If I can't change it, and it's going to happen anyway, what do I care? Well, God's sovereign will strengthens our faith and lets us live with hope. Since we know he's ultimately in control, and he has a plan that includes even those things that are evil, even though he's not their cause, he has a plan It includes those things, we can trust him that he's working out everything for our ultimate good. Since he's moving history towards its ultimate end of redemption, we can have hope that all wrongs will be righted, and we can confidently look to eternity. The important thing, I think, to remember here is that in this process, and this is the part that really makes the struggle. He allows a lot of things to happen that do not really seem very good to us. Because he has allowed for a time evil to have power once sin entered into our world through the fall. You know, massive chemical spill train wrecks and Ukrainian wars and Turkish earthquakes and cancer and divorce and all the rest of that. 
that stuff are not God's will in the sense he decreed them. I mean, God, God, I don't think God was sitting up in heaven and going, man, <laughs> folks in Turkey are just, that Erdogan guy really made me mad, so I think I'll just drop her in the God. That's what we call natural evil. Sin corrupted the whole creation. He's allowed to have because I mean I mean technically could not God have looked down on Turkey and gone oh this must be an earthquake I'll just stop that technically he could have could have but he's all powerful but he chose to allow it to happen those are the natural consequences of sin in this world all those things cancers and, <laughs> and conflict and everything else which has power for a time. Sin has power for a time. And a lot of them, at least the, the moral ones, could be avoided if people would follow God's moral will, which is our second one we're going to consider. Now, God's moral will, I like to think of like a fence. Got a picture up here of the fence. Now, inside the fence, and, and this, this, this idea of the will as a fence isn't original. I wish this was my original idea. It's not. Okay, many other pastors. Your, your pastor isn't so brilliant that he came up with this, you know, so that. I know. I know many of you like to think that's true. Okay, yeah. <laughs> it's a fence within which we can live our lives with a lot of freedom in the decisions we make. Okay? Within the fence, you have a lot of freedom. Our first and foremost duty is to honor our Lord Jesus by living out the things he's called us to. But there's a lot of latitude in how we live as long as we're striving to live within the fence of his moral will. Uh, now, we like to call it a fence because of all of the room inside this field for us to live in. So I'm going to give you an example. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, 10 through 11. For even when we were there with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now what's the general principle then? The general principle is that God has instructed us we need to be doing something productive with our time and our lives. That's the moral principle. But you know what? Within that moral principle, there's a lot of freedom. Does it necessarily have to be financially gainful employment? No. Maybe you stay at home with the kids. Okay? Because your spouse works for the money part. Well, I promise you, anyone that stays home with the kids while the spouse works is not idle. You know, when my, when, when, when my kids were very young, first of all, I get worried when I say something like that. Like that and my wife worked, and I worked, and something would go on right, where I had to stay home with the kids or something. that you might not need some help at some point in your life? No. Doesn't say that. Has a lot more to do with attitude and willingness to work and, and, and do your thing than actual dollar amounts. You know, Jesus makes it very clear it is not outside the fence of God's moral will to be poor. 
it is outside the fence to be overly lazy. And in my opinion, this is where the primary burden of God's will exists. Our first and foremost duty is to honor our Lord Jesus by living out the things he has called us to do. For example, if he tells us to make disciples, we're clearly doing God's will and we're participating in that. Whether that's making disciples here in Cedar Falls or helping the Wheatons make disciples in Peru or helping Jay and Ed, who knows how many of you know, doing things across college campuses or whatever. There's a lot of latitude in how we live as long as we are striving to live within the fence of God's moral will. If we're basically obeying the Lord and living our lives within the fence of his revealed will in Scripture, we are a long way to doing what John said in 1 John 2 of doing his will. This is especially true when it comes to those desires of the flesh and the eyes of the pride of life because God has, throughout his word, given all sorts of commands and warnings and principles and such to keep us on the path. Some are clear commands, like do not murder. That's easy, right? Okay, it's not God's will for you to commit murder. I can, I can 100% say that. Do not be unrighteously angry. Now, sometimes anger is God, it's okay. It's within the moral will. Sometimes it's not. Know the difference. Don't get drunk. He says don't get drunk. Doesn't say you can't have a drink. He says don't get drunk. Some are principles, like love God and love others, or seek God's kingdom first, or don't lay up treasures on earth. Lay them up in heaven. Those are principles. To keep you within the fence of God's moral will. Some of the principles are in the narrative. This is what trips people up sometimes. Okay? For example, if you read the Old Testament, you will find that every time someone violates their marriage covenant, it goes badly for them. I was discussing this a long time ago. But I remember discussing with this guy one time the Old Testament, and they were trying to make the case that the Old Testament says it's okay for guys to have multiple wives. Now, I'm going to tell you straight up, it takes most of my energy to, to love and care for my, my own wife. My guys want four or five, it's beyond me, okay? I, I, know, I, don't, I know there's no, no women I ever met that want four or five husbands. That's right. And I pointed out to him, every time somebody gets multiple wives in the Old Testament, it always goes bad. Abraham, David, Solomon, what does it say? His many wives led him astray from the Lord. Scripture comes right out and tells you. The reason Solomon is because he had so many wives, right? The list goes on. Those stories are not approval or prescriptive, they're warnings. Look, however, it's how the Old Testament works. A lot of times the Old Testament's narrative, so the warning is in how the story plays out. Okay? When you go and you snag the wife of your chief commander of your army and demand that she comes to your house, Okay, and then you take advantage of her physically, and then you arrange for her husband to be killed. 
it's going to go bad for you, King David. And it went very bad. Now, we all know we're not always going to obey God's word perfectly. So that means we can all benefit from spending more time in God's word, learning more of his principles. Almost everyone I know, including yours truly, maybe especially yours truly, would benefit from just growing and obeying Jesus' will as revealed in the Bible. A whole lot of the sin and struggles with sin, all those things can be addressed by disciplining ourselves with the written word of God. Simple truth is that in many cases, God has already told us what to do. It's not some mystery. He's not hiding it. It's not like, you know, you've got to go, like, digging real hard and figure it out. He's told us what to do. He's told us what not to do. And it's up to us to think and act accordingly and to check ourselves when we're not. Now, how does that apply, then, in God's individual will for us? Now, remember, what we mean by this is, is what about situations that aren't specifically addressed in the Bible? Okay, I know that I am not supposed to go take the wife of the commander of my army and have him killed. Okay, I get that. I can figure that out. But what, what about things not specifically addressed? We're moving from the idea now of the moral will, which is the fence, right? Okay, within which God expects us to live. The, the fence of God's, you know, principles and commands and that thing. But what about my decision-making when I'm, I'm, there's no clear command. I'm not sure where the fence is. I'm out there in the pasture somewhere. Where's the fence, though? It feels like it's that invisible fence, right? You know, they get to the dog and they call them up and they run too close to zap them. I mean, I know I'm supposed to be gainfully employed, right? But at what? What's God's will for my job? Should I marry this person or that person? Should I buy a Honda or a Chevy? Now that Sunday we went to Carlos O'Kelly's. 
Not because it was God's will, because it was Taylor's will. Huh. And Taylor loves Carlos O'Kelly's. I do not understand why. Okay? Carlos O'Kelly's that pretends to be Mexican food <laughs> with an Irish name. <laughs> I mean, have you ever met a Spanish person named O'Kelly? <laughs> no, of course not. All right? It's not Mexican food. It's not Irish food. We don't know what it is. It's, it's the best thing that you can take out of the freezer and put in the convection oven, I guess. <laughs> now, the truth of the matter is, this idea, if you think about it, even the people who preach about the dot do not live like this. Because you could not live like this. There is no instruction in the scripture to live like this. And if we were supposed to live like this, that would put the burden on God to reveal his will for every decision that you're going to make.
they're not the norm. Even when they do have to. Same with guidance. Doesn't mean it doesn't happen, but it means that even before we start look, looking for God to answer when we have a decision to make, we need to start by taking stock of what we know the scripture says. Start there. Maybe talk to somebody who knows more of the Bible than we do. Get them to pray for you. Get them to think through things. Maybe God's already told you what you need to know. And then if not, you can, you can ask for guidance. And again, I'm not saying he's not going to give it. Saying it's just not the normal way. The other thing you need to remember when it comes to asking for guidance from God is it will never contradict Scripture. God never contradicts himself. This is really critical. God's already given a principle or a command. You already have your guidance. He's not going to give you further guidance. And if God has already told you, if you've already spoken on it, he's not going to suddenly grant you an exception just because you think you're a special little snowflake. Well, if God only understood my life, well, God understands your life. That doesn't mean you get an exception from what he's already told us in his word. It doesn't work like that. If somebody insults you at work or at a party, you do not need to ask if it's God's will to smack them upside the head or not. He's already spoken on that. No, you don't get to do that. Okay? We don't repay evil for evil. If you see somebody suddenly drop their wallet on the floor as they're walking out of Walmart, you don't have to ask God if you've suddenly been blessed with a windfall of cash when you find their wallet. Okay, God's already spoken on stealing. I, I know you needed that money because you wanted to pay off, you know, this bill, and there just happens to be $180 in cash there, and your bill's $170, so it means you can pay the bill like in Starbucks. Okay? But God has already spoken on this. That is why. And here I go again. Knowing what God has already said in his written word is the number one thing you can do to know God's will. Number one thing you can do. Look what Peter says. Second Peter, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he's granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them we may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world because of what? Oh, sinful desire. First <coughs> John chapter 2. Sinful desire. Peter says that the things we need to follow God in our daily lives are given to us where? In knowing Jesus and his promises to us. Where do I go to know Jesus and his promises and everything else I need to know, the commands and the principles and all that? I go to the Bible. Peter pretty much says the same thing as John. You want to avoid sin and do God's will. Where are you going to find God's will? You're going to find it primarily in the Bible. So those are my warnings. Individual guidance is really not the norm. And when you do get it, it never con contradicts what God has already revealed in his will in the Bible. But that does not mean that we... We can't get help from God when his word isn't specific. And the place that we start with getting help from God when his word isn't specific is wisdom. What do I mean by wisdom? Wisdom is putting what we know about what Jesus wants into action in areas that are not specifically spelled out. It's applying the word of God, often through prayer, 
to the various situations and questions and struggles of life. This is the norm for decisions that are directly not covered by a command or a principle from God's word. You seek his wisdom. You take what you do know and ask God for wisdom to supply what you don't. James chapter 1, verse 2. Count it joy, my brothers and sisters. When you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect or mature, complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. This is a really important passage if you really want to live God's will as a follower of Jesus. It's given in the context of trials, to be trials. And you know, that's when people really, a lot of times, are trying to figure out what God's will is, right? People are struggling, people are in the midst of a trial, everything's falling apart, and they ask, why? They wonder, how am I going to get through it? What does God expect from me in the midst of this? That sort of thing. So James tells us to ask God for wisdom. Ask him for wisdom. Tell him to help me apply the things I know to the things I don't know. Asking God what principles should I be living according to my trial or my struggle. I have a neighbor who hates me. I still treat her with the same kindness I do all my other neighbors, right? I don't, I don't need to specifically seek, you know, we, we had one day, long ago, she was berating me and um, screaming at me and all that. You know, other than loving your neighbor, you know, there's no specific, I mean, should I defend myself? Should I try to explain myself to her? Should I, should I look at her and go, Jesus loves you so much. See if that helps me. Should I have looked at her? This always works with my wife if she's upset. Just look at her and tell her to calm down. That goes well, good. Let's not do that. God, this is a free marriage gift. If your wife is upset with you, looking at her and saying, calm down, is definitely not wisdom. Okay. Don't do that. There's a proverb about not answering someone according to their anger and not paying back evil for evil. So, I mean, could I say, well, let me explain to you. No, I didn't. I just but it's difficult to ask God what we should do, what wisdom applies. Maybe I don't have a direct command. Well, we can look at the principles of God's word. We can ask God for wisdom. We can pray about it. All those things. I like to call this our WQ. Something we need to all be working on. Our wisdom quotient. You know, IQ is your intelligence quotient. WQ is your wisdom quotient. Psalm 119, 97-100. Oh, how I love your law is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it's ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the age, for I keep your precepts. Just the idea there, psalmist tells us that a lot of input from God's word is going to make us wise, so the times when I don't exactly have a direct command or something, I can apply wisdom to it primary component of having guidance is wisdom. And wisdom ultimately comes really from just knowing God's word enough that even if I can't tell you a chapter or a verse, I can't look and go, well, thus says the Lord, thou shalt not 
principles the way that will help you solve them. And I can ask other people to help you with that too. And I can ask in prayer that he'll help you with that too. All those things so that I can have the wisdom to make those decisions. And maybe some point you really need his help and there's you all. I mean, we could have, I could have made this like a super long sermon. We could have talked about well, you can go back and review the other sermons when I did this in the series. The idea of circumstances and, and the idea of, of seeking godly counsel and, and those sorts of things. The point is that if you want to fulfill what John is talking about, doing God's will, with regards to sin especially, it starts by just knowing what God's already told us. And having wisdom to do that in effect. John warns us that, right, that the desires of the flesh and the eyes and the pride of life can drag us off into sin that are It'll destroy our lives. I told you, people I personally know who destroyed their lives in ministry because they got drug off into sin. They gave in. So he tells us that to counter the agency of sin that's going to tempt us according to our desires, what do you do? God's will. We follow what God says. And it's not, God's will is not some mystery. He's not trying to hide it from us. Not trying to, you know, stick it behind a curtain. Oops, surprise! Get me there. Doing God's will primarily involves following his precepts and his principles that are in the Bible. And within those precepts and principles, we have a lot of freedom to act. Stay inside the fence. And you will do God's will. And you will avoid the traps of the sins of the flesh and the sins of the eyes and the pride of life. The most important thing we can do within that is discipline ourselves through Christ and choose God's way over sin every time. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you've given us your word to guide us to the things that will keep us from being your will. You've not, you've not made it a mystery. You're not trying to hide it. You're not trying to, to keep us from a, being able to follow you and do your will. You have given us so much in the Word that we can spend a lifetime just mastering those things. And even beyond that, you've given us your Spirit in our hearts to apply that Word to us. We can, we can go on and on and all other believers to help us on and on about all the things you've given us that we can follow you and to just follow your will and to avoid those lusts of the flesh and lusts of the eyes and pride of life. So Father, help us to discipline ourselves so that we can have the freedom to live our lives in your will, the way that honors you and serves others and glorifies our Lord Jesus, who died for us and rose from the dead, and his blood cleanses us from all sin, and who has conquered sin, death, and the devil through his work on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. We give you the glory for it. In Jesus' name, amen.